what you were in Berlin? Yeah, I did my master thesis in Berlin. At which one? The mind and brain? Or? Mind and brain. Oh, I can't remember you doing that. Oh, okay. Who did you do your thesis with? Nico Busch. I mean, I wasn't. I didn't do my master's in Berlin. I did my master's in Munich, but then um, I went like um, for half a year. I went to Berlin and did my master thesis with him. Ah, oh, okay. I didn't know that. Huh. Yeah, it's the time when I was still studying vision perception processes. That stopped though once you <laughs> did that project, or? Um, I don't actually know. Yeah, it stopped. I actually um, my um, my. Bachelor thesis was in visual perception. My master thesis was in visual perception. I worked as a heavy in a visual perception lab. All I did my entire pre-PhD academic training was um, focused on visual perception um, and alpha oscillations. And then I kind of stopped and moved to Hamburg and worked with Jan. I mean, Jan just needed someone who knew EEG. Kinda, and I wanted to switch to a more computational um, approach. Which doesn't exist in vision. I mean, of course it does. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just like, to be honest, when I started my PhD, it was kind of, um, I wasn't really sure whether I wanted to stay in academia. Um, it all sounded very stressful. Uh, and so I took a break <laughs> for a while and I worked at the, uh, at the F Freie Universität in Dahlem on like a, like I was just kind of like a, long-term heavy person and did um, program their experiments and like ran a hundred of hours of um, recordings with kids um, and then I figured oh I'm doing this I might as well do get a PhD get a degree for this yeah, yeah don't don't send that on the radio I don't want people to know that I wasn't actually <laughs> no um, so yeah no I kind of I kind of switched fields completely um, I thought it sounded interesting with um, what Jan put in this ad, which actually ended up to be Lace thesis. So when I applied, um, the position was already taken. And so um, it was actually quite, f it was stressful and it was fun because Jan said, yeah, sure, you can come and you can pretty much do whatever you want, which sounded great. But then on the other hand, you're 20-something and you have no clue and you're completely new to the field. So um can also be kind of daunting. Yeah, okay, I didn't know that you... Did vision the entire time. But I guess you're, you said that academia sounded stressful. I guess that turned out not to be the case at all, right? It's very relaxing. Oh, yeah. It's like, it's like at a spa every day. It's a walk in the park. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, it is stressful and we all know that. And every, like all of us are struggling with that, I think. And everyone at some point in our career think about quitting maybe. I mean, there are certain things that are great about it, and there are other things that are really hard and, um, yeah, difficult to deal with. And I think from what I've heard and what I feel myself, it's like people go through this, these oscillations in a way. <laughs> like sometimes they're really excited about it, and then everything is just really tough and hard, and you don't see any perspective. And that's, But, I mean, I think for me the biggest advantage of academia is it's like I kind of like to hang out with these people. They're all slightly weird and have weird interests and very specific interests. And it's usually, it's very hard to find um, a researcher that isn't fun to talk to. But you know you can have the social interactions without having to work with them, right? That's true, yeah. Is this just one big socializing program for you? <laughs> yeah, that's true. But you spend a lot of time at work, don't you? And then um, imagine being true. in an office and you have all these colleagues that you don't get along with or you don't find interesting and then you have to spend yeah. all your day with them 
<laughs> yeah. By the way, have you actually? So you've been in the US for like a year now, right? More or less exactly, or? Um, yeah, I started working here May, uh, March first, twenty twenty. Okay, so yeah, and that's a, we're recording this on the twenty second. Yeah. Actually, what was the? Uh, so a few questions about that. First, is have you actually seen anything of the US yet, or have you just been at home for the last well, year? I've completely? been at home a lot, like everyone else. I mean, we we got here, and when we actually um, we got here two weeks before the travel ban. Um, was instantiated so we got here two weeks before we actually would have not been able to come here and the funny thing though is at the time there was like very few people and like maybe two three people on the plane were wearing masks and it was still this thing in china and officially there wasn't a single case i think uh, in the u.s i think also they had like the tests weren't working in the beginning or something um, but so we got here and COVID wasn't a thing yet. And so it was just normal life. LA is very much defined by traffic and it was very, very dense traffic. Um, it was very hard to get to places. And so we actually, like, we managed to buy some furniture, which was nice <laughs> because, um, and we already had a place, place when we moved here. So that was good. But, um, then I think I went to the office for about a week and a half and then it started being like, okay, um, it's this weird thing going on. We don't really know when we'll be able to come back. So try to get all your belongings and clean out the fridge. And it's, it was, it started to become this, this really scary, daunting thing. And, um, I, and then they said, you can stay home if you want to. And I kind of decided to stay home because I was taking public transportation for about an hour, one way. And, um, okay. I wasn't, and then people started to wear like garbage bags and all kinds of stuff to protect them. It was really weird. Over their face or just as? Uh, yeah, over, over their entire body, essentially. Like they were oh, really? wearing okay. homemade hazmat suits. And then um, pretty soon, oh. yeah, of course, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm still wearing one, as you obviously <laughs> Yeah, that is true. Uh, yeah, Tessa is, is wearing just rubbish <laughs> bags, <laughs> bin bags right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, no, so I, uh, that's when I started to stay home. And then three days later... Um, actually on a Friday night, we got an email. It's like, go to the office, get everything you need. You will not be able to enter campus from Monday on. So we all, like, we went, like, made the schedule and then we all went in and we grabbed our screens and our keyboards and emptied the fridge and we all met in like kind of hurry. And we wouldn't, like, we didn't really know what was going on and we packed everything and we had a rental car at the time. And so we packed everything in the car. Jonathan picked me up and. So we drove home and then um, it started raining, which is a very weird thing in, in, in Southern California. And it started raining for about two weeks, very heavy rain. It was a pandemic. We were on lockdown. Everything was closed. And that was just the, the beginning. And we sat in our like, one bedroom apartment um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty scary, to be honest, in the beginning. And <laughs> we didn't really know what was going on and everything was closed. And. The shops were empty. The shelves were completely empty, not just toilet paper, but anything that you could eat was gone from the shelves. Um, and these gigantic lines in front of the grocery stores. And so it was just really, really weird. Yeah. And you didn't know anyone there or? I didn't know. I mean, I, I knew the two people that used to live in my apartment and I, I know, but the majority of my colleagues I hadn't met. Um, I had met like three or four people and the majority of my colleagues I met over Zoom. 
And we started having these social Zooms with the lab, and we had very frequent lab meetings. And Ralph, um, so I'm with Ralph Adolph and John O'Doherty. And um, Ralph started giving, like we had to give presentations in our lab meeting about COVID, about the virus, about mitigation strategies, how it's going to affect different parts of the world. So we actually went through a really scientific progress uh, process of processing it. Um, which was so they're not as a project, just no, no, just in the lab meeting, just the lab, and yep, we kind of okay. split up the topics, and it was just um, to get ourselves informed and know what's going on, and we were looking at the different uh, predictions, at the different models, and actually, I remember back at the time when we saw that, it was like, okay, we're going to have probably we're going to have a spike in spring here, and then if we go on lockdown and everyone stays home, we're going to flatten the curve which was this big thing on Twitter, right? Hashtag flatten the yeah. curve. And then what would happen is there's going to be this bigger, gigantic peak in November, October, something like that. I don't remember the exact date, but looking at this graph, it was like, oh, actually, it's not going to get any better anytime soon. And that was, these were the models in March. And so we already knew, like we could have all already known that it's going to be really bad in, in, in the fall. And that's what happened. It was just, it was exactly how it was predicted. <laughs> and then, um, of course, it was also a strange time because, um, this was still the, um, prior administration. And it was, um, there were a lot of questions about visas and they started questioning, um, whether students that are all online actually are going to lose their student visas because they don't actually have to be here. There was this travel ban. Um, it was all these um, these blockages of J-1 visa, which um, all the scholars are on, or the majority of the scholars are on. Um, and so we really just made it to the U.S. because right after we came here, um, we wouldn't have been able to enter the country anymore. And a couple of people got stuck in Germany um, or in China. And so we had lab meetings. It was really hard to find a time for lab meetings sometimes. Because we had to cover China at all, all the way to Hawaii, which is a pretty big range, and that was sometimes hard. Um, yeah. But did you want to come to the US then, or were you a bit hesitant about doing it? Well, when we left, it wasn't a thing. It was this. I mean, it was a thing, but it wasn't a thing in Europe and the Western world, I would say. And it was this. It was similar to um, when SARS or the swine flu was around, and we knew that there was something going on or Ebola, which I kind of, I mean, this was a really eye-opening time, I think, to some degree, because there have been several pandemics over the last decades. It was just we as Europeans or as U.S. Americans or the Western, Northern, Western world have not been um, that strongly affected by it, and that was just... It was weird how all of, like, I mean, you empathized a little bit with China and with, oh, they're all on lockdown and they're sitting in their homes and it's, they can't leave the city. And then, oh, actually, we're affected too. And this is not something that can happen here. And I think it was just, I think for our generation, it's probably the first time we really experienced something that dramatic and tra traumatic, maybe. I mean, we haven't experienced any war in Europe. We haven't experienced um, major political crises. Um, there have been economic crises, but it was never, I think for us, um, that was kind of the first time that we experienced something like that. I, I, I wonder whether our parents, maybe with Chernobyl, it was similar when they weren't able to leave or eat fresh vegetables or something like that. But even with um, the, no, I'm blanking. Fukushima? No. Oh, the the Japanese the, the yeah. What's tsunami the name of the yeah. earthquake? Yeah, that Is was it? Fukushima, I think. Fukushima, yeah. 
even that didn't really affect us, right? Even though it was a gigantic, um, so we have been sitting in this very comfortable nest and everything was fine and we were wondering and worrying about very everyday things. And so it was, this is why I think this will be interesting for us as a generation or like the generations around us because we've never really experienced anything like that before. Yeah, I find it also, really hard yeah. to, oh sorry, continue. No, I was just, um, I mean, we've been in the US for a year now and we couldn't, we weren't able to travel back to Germany, right? So it was, my mom said it at some point when I talked to her on the phone, it was, oh, it's kind of like during these times of war when there was just these letters from the front and people couldn't come home. So we literally couldn't come home. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, we were fine. We have a job. We have a home. We're very safe. Um, it was just an interesting experience not being able to go see a family or anyone. Yeah. 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 I mean, what I find weird is that, you know, I mean, if I think in some sense you could say also quite affected by this, not only because I did a research project on it and spent a year of my life. Uh, doing this thing and also moved during a pandemic to a different city which in this case wasn't that much of a problem but it's still weird being in a new city and everything's closed the entire time but in a way like i don't think i've really been affected like in a way it's weird that like this huge thing is happening kind of around you but i mean number one i'm not i'm kind of introverted so i'm not someone who needs to go out to town every day or something right like I, my life is pretty similar compared to the way it normally is and second also like in terms of just like job security like this happened at the second year of my phd right so and i had four, I have four years funding so it's it's pretty much guaranteed that it's going to be over by the time i i have to look for a job basically right so in a way like it's i've been really lucky in just like how it fit into my life like if this had happened two years earlier i would have god knows like that was not a fun time in general and then to have this on top of it would have yeah would have made things pretty rough but so in a way yeah i don't even know whether it's going to make like in terms of like memory when i would think back like let's say in 20 years about like my life i'm not sure it's going to be a huge thing but for me personally well because again like i'm I'm what i I do what i do anyway i'm at home (laughs) and i read books (laughs) like (laughs) It's not, I mean, of course it has like an effect and it wasn't always easy, but I think in a way I've been lucky that it, even this big thing hasn't really affected me that much. But again, I think it's more due to circumstance rather than anything else. Yeah. I'm no, I mean, I have to admit it was, for me, it was really hard psychologically, especially in the beginning when we went on through this lockdown extremely quickly from zero to 100, essentially, and everything was closed from one day to the other. And we were just, I mean, the U.S. or California closed really early f- compared to other U.S. states. And then all these um, news from New York were coming in and Bergamo and Italy. And, um, yeah, I was, I, I remember checking all numbers every morning, different newspapers, different statistics yeah. every day and uh, like reading different models, reading different predictions. Um, yeah, I had that too, but it lasted for like a week or two. Like it wasn't, it was pretty much, I mean, it was basically when we were collecting the data for our study, which was mid-March to, well, we finished in mid-May, but basically the main work was done from like mid-March to, let's say, three weeks into early April. Then there was the same thing, but like 
outside of that? It's, I think, to be honest, it's still the first thing I do in the morning. I look at the R value. Oh, really? Okay. In no, the no, US, no. in Germany, in the region where my parents live, um, and then in California. <laughs> and I, can, I, I always know whether it's above or below one. <laughs> so what's it now? What's it today? It's a little bit over one in Germany. It's like, yeah, it's That's slightly so over one, but it has been for a couple of days. And, and the, the, the trajectory that Germany is taking is really bad. I'm really worried. Yeah, but it's in a way that's not surprising because the numbers are going up for the last few weeks. So yeah, almost of course it's above one. But yeah, we'll see. I just booked train tickets to visit my family over Easter. We'll see whether I can use them. Uh, maybe I should have waited until tomorrow because they're making some sort of decision today. But yeah, we'll see. By the way, what did you? So you mentioned you are working in Ralph Adolf's Adolf's lab. What did you? I mean. We'll get to that you spent your time doing COVID mainly this year. But what did you actually want to do? Like, what did you, what was the initial plan for going there? I mean, the initial plan, um, as I said, I'm with um, John O'Doherty and Ralph Adolfs. Um, and so it's it's two labs. Um, and John O'Doherty's focus is decision making. So just briefly, is it like equal, like half half? Or is it like mainly one with a bit of methods help from the other? Or how exactly? It's. I mean, I have my my office spaces in the Adolf's lab, um, but that was just because there was more room, so it was more of a logistical decision. Um, and also, we moved to this new building, and I have a beautiful view of the Saint Gabriel Mountains, and I'm very happy about that. <laughs> um, it, it, Tessa showed me. It's a very nice view. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, no, I mean, um, I applied with both of them last. No, no, not last. 2019. Um, and so it is essentially half half. Right now, I spent more work on uh, in Ralph Adolf's lab because the COVID study is run with the Adolf's lab. But uh, I, I'm in both labs, lab meetings, and participate in discussions. And um, so, and essentially, that was also um, the goal because the, their shared expertise is actually what is what is great. Because um, John is a is an expert in modeling of decision making and um, has decades of work on um, different forms of decision making, habit formation, um, all these kind of things. And then um, Ralph, on the other hand, um, is investigating social perception, uh, social processes um, in healthy individuals and individuals with autism. And it's just um, the combination was just great. And they have worked together a lot before. So it's Caltech is a really small school. Um, and they have collaborated a lot before and they've always had shared projects. Then there's this Conti brain imaging center here, which they also, um, acquired together. So it's, it's not hard to collaborate here. It's, um, you can easily talk to everyone. And, um, that's actually, I think, a pretty great thing about Caltech is that people really collaborate a lot and there is a lot of interaction between the different labs and i mean ralph just i mean just a couple of years ago maybe 2018 19 i'm not sure he published this book with david anderson which is actually comparing or is covering emotion processing from mice to human um so it's um it's a huge field and it's just um yeah I'm, I'm I'm really happy about the collaborations. You also get in contact with a lot of people that had been at Caltech before or that just collaborated with them on other projects. And so you get a much bigger network of people that are interested in similar things or you just you hear about a lot more things than I'm used to um, from Germany. 
Yeah. And especially, I mean, that was one upside of the pandemic is that you can now, I mean, the, the COVID project is a, there are seven different institutions working on that. And it's not a problem because we always meet on Zoom, right? So it doesn't really matter where you are and you can just work from anywhere and everyone can join. And also you have, we have a lot more lectures and talks from outside and you can easily invite people to your lab meeting to give a talk. I mean, that actually I kind of like. And then it works much better than it did before, I feel. Yeah, I think that's also something that's been handy for the podcast. That, I mean, it's kind of coincidence, but I think it probably helped in asking people that now everyone is completely familiar with all of these things and doing it regularly. There's no, I think like if I'd asked maybe two years ago, I mean, obviously people used Skype and all that kind of stuff, right? Or Google Hangouts, I think was two years ago. But anyway, like people were using all these things, right? But you know, you'd use it like once in a while. It wasn't this thing where you go like, oh yeah, I do this like video thing over the internet with people every day. So I think it probably also helped there in just making it more accessible for people to say, sure, I'll do the interview. Um, but did you have a specific research project within or was it just, Tessa, you're great, do what you want to do. We're here to help you. I didn't have... Um a specific research project to be honest so um they're very flexible and the first day i got here we went for lunch and ralph said so what do you want to do which is a here? pretty big question <laughs> and i honestly yeah, yeah. i sat yeah. there and oh. i was like um that's too existential okay. question for the first meeting <laughs> <laughs> and um but he i think he honestly meant it it's like so what you're interested in what you want to do and i was terrified i mean i was terrified in general because there are a lot of impressive people here and you don't always feel like you fit in in the beginning or even <laughs> now um so um yeah i mean i wanted to continue the work that i did in my phd to some degree so what i did in my phd was looking at um theory of mind processes and taking a more computational approach to social inference processes. So that was still generally um, the plan, but it wasn't all worked out yet what I was going to do. So I pretty much actually started by reading all the grants that they had currently, um, like they had received in the, in, in, in the years and months before I got here um, and looking at how it fits together. And then Ralph encouraged me and John encouraged me to just talk to lab members, hear what they do, um, see where I can collaborate with them. And it was, it was a really interesting experience in the first two weeks <laughs> because I could actually meet people. Um, yeah. And then it got a little harder, but um, and it took me a while to find um, the project that is going to be my project now. And then I'm actually, I'm going to work on with a colleague um, that started a postdoc here as well. And so, um, but it was, it was an interesting process and it was actually quite fun to bounce ideas around. Um, and, but it was similar to the beginning of my PhD where there was not a clear I mean, I wasn't hired to work on a project. It was more, okay, so let's think of, of something, which, as I said, is great because you can be um, very explorative and creative, but also it is extremely difficult and confusing in the beginning because there's so much you can do and then it has to be um, exciting and novel, but also it has to be manageable and it has to be, I mean, it has to cover all these different things. And so... Um, it was, it was, to be honest, it was quite a challenge, but now I'm really happy with what we came up with. It also sounds like your PhD was good preparation then in terms of the like big picture and to, like figure out your own ideas, right? Yeah. And, um, I mean, that wasn't 
just my ideas, right? It was with um, Jan and Michael, and it was also all of us bouncing ideas around, and, and Jan, um, Martin Hebert, and so um, no, it was, but yeah, it was a good preparation in the sense of okay, you there is a lot going on, but still, I feel like it's still extremely difficult, and I yeah, it's the most fun and the most difficult part of academia, I think. Yeah, I mean that's the thing about doing something new, right? You can't just people yeah. can't just tell you what to do. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, we'll, I think we'll talk more than maybe about like what you did during your PhD and about that kind of stuff maybe in maybe a bit more later. Now, so as we mentioned, you, you spent the first year basically of your first doc doing something completely different. Um, I mean, you already mentioned like that you were already, that you had these lab meetings where people would present stuff. Did it start then from there that people said like, I don't know, we've already done all this research into this or was it, how did that start? Um, actually, it started with Uri Moss, who used to be a postdoc with Ralph and is now um, at Chapman University in Orange County. Um, I think they had a conversation just, huh, this is an interesting time and it's probably going to affect um, biases a lot, especially um, in the US or just generally anti-Asian biases. And um, so they just started chatting, I think, and then Ralph sent an email um, over the lab mailing this and said, hey, um, I was just chatting with Uri and we want to do something. I mean, it seems like it's a good time to do something. Who's interested? And then a couple of people responded. It was Yan Ting and myself in the beginning um, and um, Damien Stanley, who's in New York and who also was a postdoc here. And um, because Damien has done a lot of work on implicit and explicit biases. And that's um, because, so Ralph was like, oh, if you're doing something on biases, we should definitely call Damien. And so that's how they got Damien. And then it was like, okay, so um, who else is interested? And it was Yanting and myself. And then we started chatting, essentially. So we just had the Zoom call. It's like, okay, so what are we going to do? Um, we have to be quick because it's it's already happening. It was, I think, mid of March. And then we started brainstorming and we had a couple more people join. Um, and it was a very, um, fast and exhausting period of time. So we launched this COVID dynamic study on April 4th. And so we decided, so we decided we wanted to do something longitudinal, something really long longitudinal, because as I said, we, we looked at these projections and it was kind of clear that this thing was not going to go away soon. Um, and a lot of things are going to happen and this is going to be a period of extreme change and all kinds of things. And um, so we were sitting there and discussing, so what would potentially be um, relevant and what was relevant at the time was that toilet paper <laughs> and um, people <laughs> staying at home. And so, um, but it was okay. So, so things are going to change. And it was, and, and we were just sitting there and trying to think about and predict what would happen in the next uh, couple of months um, over the next year. And so we we focused on designing a study that would take almost a year. Um, and of course, in the beginning, the massive problem was funding as well, because actually running a study with a thousand people over a year in the beginning weekly, then bi-weekly, and then later we went to a m monthly schedule is actually quite a, um expensive endeavor. Yeah, that's what I, when I presented in the lab. I was like, guys, they paid them like ten dollars an hour they must have paid like hundred thousand dollars for this study or something like we did pay a lot i mean um yeah, yeah. we did pay not a exact, lot of money yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> you don't have to say the exact figures but i was just, look, just looking at like the data report is like this is an expensive study 
it was an expensive study, but we also wanted, um, because, I mean, it is a longitudinal study, right? And it was conducted over the internet. And so we also wanted people to be happy, right? We wanted them to come back. Um, and also, I mean, it was a time of, uh, it was a gigantic economic crisis, right? So um, a lot of people actually started doing these online studies to um, earn a little extra money and you wanted to pay them fairly, right? So um, they got 10 hours, uh, 10 dollars an hour and each, 10 hours <laughs> each um, session lasted about an hour. And we just, um, yeah, I mean, they were helping us with a complex project and we really wanted them to be fine and to be happy. And, and later clinical psychologists joined the project as well. And people that are studying substance abuse um, and trauma. And so they were like, oh, people, you have to provide some resources. I mean, these people are really depressed, as you can see from their scores. And you guys have to, we, ha we have to provide resources on um, for psychological help or food banks or these kind of things, because people were really struggling. And people sometimes really wrote very heartbreaking messages, um, our participants, essentially. And so, yeah, we, we started this thing and we thought, okay, let's start Let's run it on weekends because probably the news cycle is going to pick up um, on Monday again. And so we wanted this period between Friday and Monday when things were a little slower and new um, policies had already been established, and then before the new stuff happened on Monday so that we'd be able to kind of capture things in time. Um, but then things got really crazy in the U.S. over the last year, and it really didn't matter whether it was the weekend or not, I feel. <laughs> but that was the plan. So this is why um, kind of the, the structure of the study was to record every weekend. Um, from We gave them um, 48 hours to uh, complete the study from Saturday morning till Monday morning, and they could do it whenever they had time. But we just wanted to... Um, have it in a fixed period of time. We try to sample all over the U.S. We try to sample more, um, like a larger age group. But of course, it's, there is the sampling bias. There is a massive sampling bias, um, in running a study over the internet. And, um, did you consider, I mean, so you did it by a prolific. Did you consider doing it as a representative study or was that just going to completely ruin the budget? Um, because well, it costs like 30% more or something on there, right? To do representative. Um, no, we did sample. I mean, actually, you can you can choose some criteria, right? So we tried to make it. So we we actually launched it in different batches over the U.S. so that we could cover the East, the Middle, and the West. Um, so we try to get the same amount of participants in each um, in each area, and then we also launched it in different um, age brackets. Um, so that we could cover um, uh, the a higher age bracket uh, more representatively. But it's, for example, it's extremely difficult to sample a politically representative sample, even over prolific. And I mean, the majority of prolific users are more left-leaning Democrats in the in the U.S. Um, they're less conservative voters, um, and also it's a very it's a, it's a very dynamic characteristic of a person right especially in a year of an election so we couldn't we couldn't really representatively sample for that um and also um other like um, race and ethnicity was um hard to cover so that's what i mean and also it had to be really quick so that we it was kind of like a trade-off okay we either launch it today or we wait another week get this <laughs> figure that out so it was really just a push and pull between what can we actually do? Because we were three people in the beginning running this thing. Okay. And uh, like what I meant was that on Prolific, you have the option to say that you want a representative sample according to age, gender, and ethnicity in the country. But that then doesn't include geographic, I don't think, and political, definitely not. 
Yeah. So, but the thing is also that cost then, like, basically prolific then has to really organize and get the people who are like a between 65 and 70 year old Asian woman or whatever, right? Like, they have to get those people so they cost like 30% more or something. Yeah. But I guess you kind of did that in a more like manual way then. Yeah, we try to um, account for ge geographic location and um, age, and it did work to some degree. We got participants from all 50 states, and I think our oldest participant was 83. Yeah, no, it looks pretty good. I mean, as you mentioned, the I mean, you have this figure, right, about like the political stuff, yeah, like half your people identify as Democrat in your study, whereas what is it, like a third usually do it in the US, so it is biased in that sense, but... No, I mean, like, I mean, the thing is also like, even if you have, even if you have like a fully representative sample according to six criteria, that's only going to be for the first data collection, right? And as soon as you have dropouts, it's just going to deteriorate yeah, anyway. Exactly. Okay. So that actually, that's, so one question I had, like, in general is like just, or not one question, but like one area I'd like to cover is the practicalities of doing this research because it's, I mean, you said it, you started with three people, but. I mean, when you look at the paper, there's like six people, seven people on here named, and then like another 10 who aren't even named. And Ralph Adolphs is one of the people who isn't even named. He's like part of the COVID dynamic team. So how did, did you, did just more people find out what you were doing or did you reach out to people or how did kind of this team grow and develop or change? It was very dynamic. It was a mixture of both. Um, I mean, there are, as I said, there's people from seven different um, institutions involved in this project, and it ranges. Uh, I mean, it covers cognitive science, uh, neuroscientists, um, psychologists, political scientists like Mike, Mike Alvarez, for example, joined, who is, I mean, he does a lot of research on elections and political research here. Um, and he, like, he did a huge amount of work on the, on the election in um, 2019. Um, and so, for example, it was great to get his um, insight and advice on the study because he actually was the first one who was like, okay, yeah, I know you psychologists really don't care about what your sample looks like. <laughs> Essentially, you just take whatever you can get. But no one else really accepts that. So <laughs> you should really think about this, that that it's mostly young, well-educated um, college students, essentially, that you're testing usually. Um, then there were there was Gillian Yaffe joining from Yale Law School who got another, like, put another perspective onto this, um, more about the policies and, uh, um, for example, um, his student, Caroline Lawrence, manually went through all the, um, all the policies in each state and collected it on, like, every wave. She went through this whole thing and was like, okay, what are the, what's the max number of people that can gather? Is there, um, is mask, is there a mask mandate? Is there a stay at home order? And she collected all of this manually because at the time it wasn't, there was no like freely available uh, website that was collecting all that information. And so it was a huge amount of work by a huge amount of people collecting, like getting funding is, was a huge task. And, and Ralph spent a lot of time just trying to find the money to run this thing. Um, and then, yeah, we had to code up all the tasks and the, the questionnaires and then um, actually monitor the study because it had to run in these um, 48 hours, right? And if people encountered any technical difficulties, we had to help them. So there was, we monitored it from 7 a.m. Eastern to 10 p.m. like uh, West Coast time. So there was always someone um, monitoring the prolific messaging board and seeing whether people had any kind of problems. And um, we had like this elaborate 
uh, <laughs> Damien created this really beautiful figure of how we solve technical I issues. It's like this gigantic flowchart. Um, <laughs> and so, so um, did you have many technical issues? Because I mean, we are basically the same thing with, let's say, half the participants you had. Or I mean, not even that. We yeah, and I never. I mean, a few people messaged me here and there, but it was like three. Um, or four it's or not as much. So the questionnaires weren't a huge issue, but we also ran these tasks. Um, and then, for example, um, I'm, I don't want to bash any browsers here, but some um, <laughs> didn't work. Um, <laughs> and we had to find all of these out uh, things out in the beginning, right? And um, loading um, all the images sometimes didn't work, and some people had just like connection issues or. They were worried because there was this short period of time where they could complete it and then they um, didn't have time or they like they were interrupted and they were very worried about um, not being able to finish it. Um, and so they contacted us or like all kinds of other things. So just they wanted to clarify something or um, a link wouldn't work. So it's um, I mean, there are a ton of different things. And when thousand like 1000 people at a time do it, you have to be quick to respond to these messages and keep track of it. So we came, we became this like a uh, customer service thing for a while. <laughs> yeah, I mean that is always a. I did have this huge. I mean, like I have it in general with online studies when you once you put it live because it was like, oh God, I hope I didn't mess up, otherwise I'll get like two hundred pointless responses now. Yeah, but it's not a problem because you, I mean you know whatever it's like especially online it was often a short study that you I did before the pandemic uh, so. You know, worst case scenario, I waste a bit of money, which is silly, but you know, not that big of a deal. But with the COVID study, it really was like, if I get this wrong, <laughs> then like, I've ruined our data collection, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, I'd better not get this wrong. No. <laughs> and I mean, of course, we got things wrong, right? We had technical problems and then it, we, like, we discovered bugs every once in a while. So we had to adapt it every once in a while. And, and of course, there, I mean, we're only human, right? And there's, it was, as I said, it was a very big time pressure. So, of course, we got things wrong. But, uh, yeah. No no fatal errors? No fatal errors, but... Um, like you forgot to record the participant ID or something? or That did not happen, but um, <laughs> other things happened. <laughs> okay. Do you want to disclose them, or is that... <laughs> um, um, I mean, it was like uh, forgetting to make responses first or forgetting um, a question there and you know, or something like this. You know, it was like this gigantic amount of questionnaires um, and tasks or um, we had this uh, one task that was actually a real interactive game where but so because it was hard to run it. Um, the time so they got feedback the next wave they returned and then it was just um, difficult to make sure that they all got the correct feedback um, and I to be honest had not I've never run an online study before the COVID study so I was kind of learning as I was going so um, for example something that that was one of the big technical issues is uh, that um, this feedback for example wouldn't load and um, or for this participant wasn't there or something like that and we just had to make sure that everything's there yeah I mean, I made one really annoying error. It's just so stupid. It, it's not a problem in the end, but it, it was this thing where, so we had like, you know, when we created the server, we had all these different questions. And sometimes we'll make new versions of the questions, um, right, just to improve it. So then when we went to the, that was the first data collection, then for the second data collection, I just copied the project over, right? And we added some stuff and that kind of thing. And anyway, I was like, oh, well, you know, I can just delete some of these old questions we're not using. Uh, because you know we're not using them and then i could confuse and accidentally put the 
old questions in that kind of stuff. That turned out not to be the greatest idea that I ever had because it turns out the way the data was recorded is that every question you have is a column, which means that even the questions you don't use are a column in your data set, which means that once you take some out, you now have the fun task of finding out which, like you have to rearrange all the columns you have, which in a way is not that big of a problem because it all shifts systematically. But that was an unnecessary amount of work we had just because I for once tried to be tidy. Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. It is. So um, Andy and Lynn have created these ginormous tables because also we, yeah, we changed things around as we went along and like the variables changed name. And so there's like a huge table that just aligns the variable names and all the different waves and all the different participants. And, uh, it's just like, so that all have like all columns have the same. And it, that, I mean, that was a, we're still working on that. We're still working on cleaning and sorting out the data. It was. Yeah. Do you also find that the most fun task of the entire project? <laughs> Sorting data and making, putting a lot of time into not messing up majorly. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, I mean, for me, this was the first time working in such a big group of people. I mean, as, as researchers, you usually just like have one or two collaborators that you work with on a project, right? But you don't work with, um, 10, 20 people at a time. Um, and that was an interesting experience. I mean, we had to change our coding habits. <laughs> um, we had to make sure that everything's well documented. But, um, and I learned a lot from, from, for example, from Lynn, who's great at organizing these kind of things and keeping structure in these things and, and documenting everything very perfectly and neatly. Um, and I mean, it, it, of course, it's a very tedious job, but it was actually great to, learn from other people how they do this um, and also develop like uh, different strategies to how to deal with these things um, and now as i said we're still cleaning and sorting and organizing the data and as we go back and forth between people um, you have more control so like someone someone creates the table and then someone else starts using it and realizes oh there's an issue here or this doesn't make sense and so there's i think it's actually much more um, controlled than when you do it by yourself, right? Because usually you you code it like an analysis, for example, um, and no one ever goes through your code. And I'm pretty sure there are mistakes here and there. I mean, <laughs> it's it's very yeah. unlikely um, that it's not. And so that was, I mean, I've, to be honest, I really enjoyed working in this um, big team, especially in this time of lockdown, because it was it became like um, a very a tight connection because it was it was always we were always in a rush it was always time pressure um and um i think i have never said goodnight to as many colleagues like as, as often as i did now over slack um and um i think it was actually i learned a lot from this and i think it's um, and as i said also from having people of different expertise in there and for example having a political scientist tell you a little bit about how other fields and like social science do these kind of things which i don't know how psychology and cognitive science got around not taking care of these things like like which things for example not sampling representatively or not um, weighting your data properly so that your data like your sample is um more representative um just not looking at that um but isn't that just, it seems to me like a lot of those things are more relevant to this research than to other research though, right? Like if it's something like this, where your perceptions, like kind of stuff really depend on your political affiliations, that kind of stuff. And then that makes a huge difference. But I wonder like to what extent it really makes that much of a difference in most research. 
I mean, when, when you look, for example, at social decision making, um, it is something that is heavily influenced by your culture and how you grew up and how you've been socialized and educated, right? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of studies on cultural differences, for example, um, how some societies are more individualistic and others are more collective. And I'm pretty sure that um, there are very different views, even between Germany and the US, and how self dependent or independent you have to be or um, how much you rely um, on the society and on the group. And I mean, that was actually something that I think was really interesting in the beginning of COVID because, um, for example, this mask, like wearing a mask and not going out is a gigantic public goods game, right? It's not fun. And um, especially for young people, it was this, okay, we um, are probably not going to get hurt as badly. And it is a cost for myself staying at home and not meeting other people but if everyone behaves in the same way like if everyone doesn't stay at home and doesn't wear a mask and still meets people then we're all going to be heavily affected because then the the hospitals are going to be overwhelmed and then um, nothing works anymore and then when I get into a car accident or something I'm also they can't treat me because the, the hospital is completely full so it is this it really is this question of um yeah do I work with everyone else hoping or expecting that everyone else is also following that strategy or that practice? Or am I just um, looking out for myself here? Am I looking for my own needs? And I think, I mean, that is something really interesting, I think, about this pandemic is how we as a society collectively behave. And also that we have these collective experiences right now. We have, at the same time have very similar experiences. I mean, it's very different for each and every one of us because, as you said, you're like you're more of an introvert. You don't care. It's fine for you to sit at home and, and read books. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's perfect. Don't bother me. I haven't had to make any excuse for not wanting to go to party in months. It's <laughs> exactly. amazing. <laughs> and then there are other people who are like really dependent on social context and social interaction or... Um, as you said, we both kept our jobs. We, we were able to work from home um, and other people lost their jobs or they still had to go to work and um, be exposed to very um, dangerous situations. And so it's um, there is a similarity in how we experience this time, but there's also each individual person's experience, which is very different. But there is like this base fluctuation underlying it, which is very similar, um, at least within a nation, maybe or in, a, in, in an area. And even though we were in this period of um, being so separated, like socially distant, I, I mean, it's, it's still a huge uh, social psychology question and experiment, essentially. It's like, how are we going to behave? It's this, uh, I mean, this crazy thing about buying toilet paper. Why on earth was toilet paper sold out so quickly? And it was this, I mean, and it was this massive um, social feedback loop Everyone else is buying it. I need to buy it. Yeah, that was the one thing in Germany we had. Like, there was nothing with food ever. That was, apart from, like, maybe one or two days when, like, certain food items were gone. That, but, like, toilet paper was a thing where, I mean, like, even my, my mom said, she, you know, she lives in, like, a, the countryside, basically, where it's very relaxed because it's, like, everyone has their own house and all that kind of, like, it's just, you know, you don't have these, like, dents. Um, and also, like, the supermarkets, um, and she said, you know, like, well, I like always just like in the cellar has like some, some stored goods, right? Just uh, like in a storage room. She's like, you know, I'm on my own. I had like toilet paper for two months or whatever. 
But then after like four, five, six weeks of just not seeing any toilet paper in the supermarket, she did go like, uh, I'd better buy someone when I get it, like when when they have the opportunity. She started asking like the, the people in the supermarket, like, when, I, when are you guys going to get more toilet paper? Because I'm starting to get worried here too. Yeah. Um, yeah, they started selling single rolls um, at the checkout here. So you could only take two rolls at a time. It was also, I mean, you could only take two of the same items, for example, at the same time. Like two loaves of bread, for example. Milk and like that kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, and it, I mean, that's a massive social phenomenon, right? It's like a massive social feedback loop that was going on there. But like one thing that really surprised me um, when we were talking about like differences between groups and that kind of stuff. One thing that really surprised me when, or maybe I should say, so I lived in Hamburg from, well, until end of November of 2020, and now in Heidelberg since December. And in Heidelberg, people, you know, like I was in, I was in Hamburg, November, and then two days later, I was in, in Heidelberg. And Heidelberg, people wear masks more. It's, I find it quite noticeable. You just go there. There was this like, and I think it wasn't. You didn't have to at the time. There's this big like shopping road, basically, where it's like a pedestrian center, and there's like you know shops everywhere, and pretty much everyone was wearing a mask there, which definitely wasn't the case in Hamburg. And what surprised me most, almost, is like I had it again this morning. You see these like young kids, like young lads, like 15 year olds or whatever, outside, chilling, wearing a mask. Like it really surprised me that like. Those were the last kind of people I thought who would be sticking to the restriction when no one is watching, when they're just amongst themselves. But they're completely sticking to it. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, not in Hamburg. <laughs> I can tell you that. It's interesting, right? I mean, it's not that far apart. I mean, here you can also see it. Different um, parts of LA County um, or when you drive 40 minutes, it's a completely different picture. Here, everyone goes, people go running with a mask, people go hiking with a mask, they're always wearing a mask, essentially. And it's become this kind of um, greeting thing, is that when, you wear, when you're walking with your mask down, and then you pass someone, you automatically put it up. It's like, um, and or other people don't put it up, or don't even have it with them. So it's kind of becoming this political statement, in a way, to wear a mask or not wear a mask um, when you're outside. In the US, yeah. In the US, yeah. But even within California, which is considered to be very... Right. Sorry. Yeah, of course, California is like 300% Democrat or something. Actually not. So there is um, there is variability here, um, but it's... Um, no, it's just... Yeah. It's interesting, I think. I mean, it's also interesting just how the norms change in terms of... You know, there's this... I think this was... I definitely had this thought, and I saw... I think I saw a tweet about this or someone like, you know, whenever you see someone outside... Walking around outside with a mask on, you kind of want to keep distance from them because, like, oh, they've probably got something gross. But now, since the pandemic, it's like, oh, they are safe. I, I can like always walk closer to them than to someone else. Like that, because like in Germany, yeah. no one like you couldn't even buy masks, right? Like because it just wasn't a thing at all. Um, I mean, I heard like you know some Asian countries you have it where it was fairly common, and usually people were out running around with a mask in Germany would be Asian people, right? Would be like you'd very occasionally see someone with a mask and it would almost always be someone from Asia because it's just a norm thing. But yeah, that's changed. That's a norm that's just completely flipped. Yeah, I mean, that's something that is interesting to look at. I mean, that's also part of the study to some, like one part of it is um, especially Uri and um, 
Gideon looking at this and changes and norms and, and behaviors. Um, but for example, when you were just mentioning it with um, mostly Asian people, where it's part of and when you're sick, you're wearing a mask, you won't get onto a subway if you have a cold without a mask kind of thing. Um, as I said, like part of the study is also looking at um, implicit and explicit racial biases. I mean, especially right now, for example, there have been a lot of reports about um, anti-Asian um, crimes. Um, oh, that was events. last week, right, or something? Uh, yeah, last week there was a shooting in Georgia with the majority of victims being Asian women, and um, it's being discussed whether it is a hate crime or... I mean, there are all kinds of questions about the motivations of the shooter, um, but also small, I mean, it's not just shootings, but it's also smaller events, people being insulted on the street and these kind of things. And I mean, we all have biases. And I notice, I mean, I notice in my bias that at some point, whenever we, like when restaurants opened up again, for example, when you could sit outside, I always felt like we should go to an Asian restaurant because I trust Asian people way more to behave responsibly with respect to the pandemic because um, they know what they're dealing with. Asia is doing a much better job at handling the pandemic than most Western countries. I mean, it's also a bias. It's a super strong bias. And, and but it can half the people were probably born in the US. Yeah, but it feels um, safer and more organized. And there is hand sanitizer on every table. And um, it's more it's more structured with our field. But it's, it's, it's a super strong um, bias. And so I think it is interesting how that changes over time. And then also with the killing of George Floyd, that added to the dynamics of biases, I think, especially in the U.S., so I think when that happened, we kind of thought, okay, this is not the COVID dynamic study anymore. This is just... Yeah, I mean, you've, it's also you've got so many different questions in there and so many things you're asking about. You are just, if we forget about COVID for a second, you probably are just getting a lot of data just about how all these variables change over time and how these perceptions, norms, whatever, just change. Yeah, just because of the stuff that's happening, there's let's say, largely unrelated to COVID? Yeah, um, I mean, we had um, these questions about implicit and explicit biases towards um, Asian Americans. Um, and uh, we kind of included the question about um, biases towards black people um, as a control condition in a way, as a comparison of also, like we had like, um, as, a, as a control com condition to compare it to anti-Asian biases, um, and then um, this social civil rights movement ruined your control. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, <laughs> I, mean I, I think I mean it was impressive. It was impressive how long people went to the streets and how, um, I mean, yeah, how strongly um, that influenced um, the world and, and the U.S. and then U.S. politics. And it, but it was just an extremely variable time, and. Um, and you've got data for everything. We've got data for everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, we'll see. Uh, speaking about having data on everything. So one thing I really struggled with in our study is, and our study is obviously much, much smaller than yours. Uh, we have three time points for data. We have, I don't know, let's say there's like 20 to 30 variables or something that are like the main ones. I found it really hard to like 
I mean, to be fair, we also tried to kind of put it in one paper and wipe one paper out of this. But that was a real struggle to kind of, that's basically what I'm finishing. Well, I would be finishing right now if we weren't talking. Um, to like really just find that, get put that into one framework so you have like one paper where we can describe what we're doing in a coherent way. Uh, how on earth are you going to do that? I mean, I guess you're doing lots of studies out of this in a way. That's the answer. But how do you... Actually, for a binary question, have you actually already started analyzing data or is it still like organizing, sorting through? Um, I mean, it's a mixture of both. So as I said, this is a huge team effort and different people contributed different questions and different ideas and different focuses on, on, on different topics, right? And so, um, and also, um, the study contains well established questionnaires, like psychological questionnaires or political questionnaires and, and, and tasks. And then there are more experimental measures that people develop just for, for this study kind of. Um, and so, um, and then you have the external stuff. And then we have the external stuff on top of that. Yeah. So, um, it's um there are a bunch of people working on different uh, projects and we meet once once a week and we have this um kind of um data structure system where you have to um you have to present to the group um what you want to do with the data you have to request the data um like all the variables you want um and and this is not um i mean this is kind of like to make sure that everyone knows who's working on what and there are more people joining now that the data is there um working on different projects and we get help from statisticians, for example. Um, but um, this, the, the idea behind that was to make sure that no one is just p-hacking and just looking around in the data and exploring it as long as, so uh, until they find something, but that there is a discussion beforehand and people present it and we make sure that everything's sorted out. But there are a ton of different projects um, going on and some have started anal analysis yet. Some are still um, in the exploration phase. Yeah, I mean, um, one, I think like one paper was published on that and that was on mask norms. And that was actually done by Carolyn Lawrence, um, the person that also collected all this data on policies. And she's a um, law student. So she was particularly interested in how these, like the effect of these mask law laws, because before COVID, you weren't allowed to wear a mask, right? Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, there are, um, as I said, people from Rutgers looking at substance abuse. There are um, is a huge study that Ralph and um, um, one of Ralph's um, grad students are working on, which isn't particularly related to COVID. It was just looking at um, change over time, looking at how states and traits change over time within an individual, and 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 um, doing like they're running um, uh, simulations on that. Um, where looking at more as I'm, yeah, I'm mostly focused on the, on the social questions and the bias questions. Um, and we're looking at, um, we're starting to analyze things there, but it's also still in the process of making sure that the data is all high quality data. Um, that we make sure that there are no weird data points in there and everything works and everything is correct. So we're currently transitioning from this period of, um, sorting everything to actually looking at it. Yeah. Uh, one question I had, which is, kind of random one um so you have all these so looking right now at your table one where you'd say like what you collected when mm -hmm. and again i'm immediately contrasting this like what we did so we basically had like some questions and then each time we collected more data we added questions but we maintained the initial thing whereas in your case it seems 
questions came in and out almost of the survey and there's like some that are i mean let's just take the humanitarian egalitarianism uh questionnaire i guess or whatever mm -hmm. um you collected that on the first two data collections then on the fifth and then on the seventh mm -hmm. but not on anyone not on the eighth or any in the middle um like how did you that there's quite a few of these which i kind of have a seem to have a, a regular rhythm in terms of data collection like number one why <laughs> uh, like how did you why was that and what how did you decide when to collect what yeah maybe that's let's just leave that question then i'll ask the rest later so you don't have to remember five questions um so why why we selected different questions at different time points was um as i said there were a lot of people involved a lot of questions being asked and it just i want to one issue was just um, there wasn't enough time to do everything every time because um, we felt like more than an hour is just too hard, too difficult on the participants, especially with all these questionnaires. It's a lot of questions. It's a lot of reading and you don't want to tire them out too much and make it too hard on people. Um, so that was why we didn't collect everything every time. And um, then another issue is a lot of these questionnaires, for example, um, ask about in the last 30 days, for example or in the last six months. Um, and so um, if you collect data every week, you don't need to repeat this questionnaire because you're asking about the last 30 days. Um, then, um, as I said, there's this um, one project that is specifically focusing on um, how it's like what is considered to be a state and what is considered to be a trait of a person. So what is something that stays stable over time relatively stable over time and what discriminates people from one another. Um, and the other thing is like the state, what is, um, that is more dynamic. It changes more over time and is more situational. Um, and so we, um, selected, for example, these questionnaires, which are considered to be more, um, trade specific, looking more at trade measures. Um, we repeatedly sampled them, but not every time. But there's more the basic question of, do these things change? Um, is that something that is actually stable in a person? When you look, for example, at the state trait um, anxiety questionnaire, where you have like where you ask about states, um, anxious states and anxious traits, and then the assumption will be you have, don't have to repeat a trait questionnaire because this is something that is stable, right? But um, especially right now, it could be that um, actually your trait anxiety changes over time, and it's I mean it's a period of continuous. Um, stress over months and months um, at a time. And so there is the potential for things to vary, but we thought we don't have to sample it every time. Um, and then other things. So, and then you just went, let's say you don't have sample every time, then you just say, do we have time for it this? this well, I know we have, um, we have a planning sheet where we have, um, we will mark for each, um, each questionnaire, each part, each task, um, what the desired frequency would be. So monthly or bi-monthly or just once, for example, like the basic, big um, demographic questionnaire in the beginning, it was fine to do it only once. Um, and then um, we just, or mostly Lynn, um, planned um, what was going to be collected when, and then some things were being discussed. And we had um, trial runs before we started um, every wave, like a bunch of people went through the thing and we looked at how long does it take. Um, and then we had to adapt maybe sometimes a little bit. Um, and then, I mean, that stopped after maybe 10 waves or something, but we did really 
track it a lot in the beginning and then also we added things as um, events unfolded right so for example before the election we added questions about um, political views and who you trust most and then during the protests i mean during during this um, big black lives not matter movement there were a lot of protests all over the u.s um, and so we added questions about that when there were the gigantic wildfires on the west coast and we have a pretty big sample on the West Coast. We added questions. Have you been affected? Have you, have you been evacuated? Have you lost anything? Do you know anyone who lost their home or something like that? Um, and now we added questions about the vaccine rollout, right? Um, and whether they would be willing to um, get the vaccine or whether they had the option to get the vaccine and these kind of things. So um, some things were fixed and stable over time because um, those were planned to be repeated. And then we adapted it also as things, as events unfolded over 2020 and 2021. Um, God, there was one point. What did I want to say? Gone. Um, <laughs> I don't know what I wanted to say. Maybe I'll come back to you. Probably like at a point when we're talking about something completely different <laughs> and it's no longer relevant. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about like computational modeling of social interaction. Like, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> I find, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess we kind of figured it would be something like that, that it would be a kind of some, I mean, like one, you also have one question about uh lifetime trauma or something like that right like those kind of questions that you don't need to ask every time yeah but then so how do you again like just i mean i'm just curious now from a from a just practical perspective because i found this is like i was much much smaller project it's like nothing i've done before and i don't think i'll do again but like okay so you have this i mean as you describe in the preprint you have this protocol of how you can get to analyze the data um, is it, uh, is it basically anyone who has something they want to do just comes to that meeting and says, I want to do this? Or is it kind of more clearly defined where we say almost like this is like your area? This is your area or it just seems like, you know, it could, this is just another like thing that has to be organized. Otherwise everyone's just running around at the same time. And yeah. I mean, it does take time and it is complex and it's also a different, like an interesting social interaction and experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, no, so as I said, there are some measures which are more experimental, for example, or that people specifically designed um, for this and put a lot of work into. And it's kind of clear that this is uh, the people that design that have the right to use it first, essentially. But then um, when you um, when you want to look at a certain question and you think, oh, this could be interesting too. You you present it and you you ask the people that develop the tool or something like, do you want to collaborate on that? Should we work on that together? Um, and um, yeah, this is how it works. And then some of these questions, for example, these well-established psychological questionnaires, is we just put them in there. None of us have any kind of intellectual rights regarding these questionnaires, right? So um, people can can join it and use it. But so right now the group is um, still, I mean, the people that are involved and the people that are listed as collaborators on, on this project and as, 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 yeah, as people working on this project. And then the idea is once we got a chance to look at the data ourselves in a year to make it simply publicly available. Um, and before that, if you want to use the data, um, you can always contact us and ask to collaborate on it. And then you just also have to present in this meeting. And um, we, we just, yeah, we just want to see 
what your plans are, what you want to do with it. Um, but I think it makes a lot of sense to join forces with other studies um, that looked at similar questions um, over this year. I mean, there are a ton of studies looking at psychological change over 2020. Um, and it would be interesting to compare different samples. It would be interesting to compare different um, communities. Um, and also just um, to increase the power, for example, or see whether we can replicate our findings um, in a different sample. So I think so I just remember what I wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, go ahead. Um, it was about the how long the questionnaire can be, because that's, I mean, I already found an hour is um, quite demanding. Like, I think, like, one of the big things I remember doing repeatedly is like, you know, everyone, of course, we had five people in our paper, right? And um, everyone's like, why don't we collect this? Why don't we ask that thing? I'm like, no, <laughs> it's already 25 minutes long. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> We're not putting anything more into this. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's really tricky to see. But did you notice any like data quality reduction throughout the experiment or something like that? Um, I mean, so the way that we did it is we had a first set of questionnaires in the beginning, and then they did these um, decision tasks or like these more classic trial by trial tasks. Um, and then they repeated the second batch or they finished the second batch of questionnaires. So we kind of split it in two. So it wouldn't be the same thing for an hour. So they had a little bit of a break in the beginning, uh, in the middle where they did something else um, and where they had to like, yeah, make decisions or rate something or something like that. We do look at, we have a bunch of different quality measures that we went through. So we don't see a strong decline um, within the questionnaires, I think. But um, also we haven't looked at that in detail because um, we also changed the order of the questionnaires. So um, we haven't we haven't analyzed that in detail. We have the order and we will have to look at this. Um, but for now, we only look at, at the quality overall. Um, and we de do see a decline over the first couple of waves. Um, and we also see a quite a bit of attrition over the first couple of waves. And we, um, so when you look at, um, the first wave, we start with, I think, 1700 something people. And then it, it declines a little bit over time. And we also, for the first five waves, we actually excluded people. So we have like a bunch of attention questions in there. We look at the, um, duration, if they're too fast, um, we look, and we also have this one question is just how likely are you to stick with this study? This is a longitudinal thing. How likely are you to come back? And if they said, I'm not, <laughs> and we didn't invite them again, for example. Um, and so, um, that was, that, those were the criteria we used to select our sample in the beginning. And then we had this pretty stable group of people that always returned and that had a pretty high quality, like had high quality data. Um, and we look at, I mean, we look at a bunch of things, for example, free response questions. Is there, is there, are there reasonable responses in there? Are there words in there? How many words are in there? How long are the response strings? Like in these long questionnaires, it is just all the same. I mean, you can't really detect random choice behavior, but as long as it's um, repetitive and you can see it. Um, and so we include all of these things. It's obviously, it's not a perfect measure. Um, and it is demanding and long, but um, I think, yeah, I mean, it's a trade-off, as you said. Yeah, but wait, you just said that the data quality decreased throughout the waves, right? So no, it was just, um, no, no, it didn't decrease. It was just, uh, um, in the beginning, we excluded a couple of people. So the proportion of people that had not so great quality was larger in the beginning 
And so the proportion of that people decreased. Yeah. So okay, that um, makes sense to you because yeah, I thought like wait, but your table. No, yeah, no, the, the, the quality. And yeah, yeah. The, okay, the, good. Yeah. I mean, it's fewer people because we have attrition, but and also we excluded a bunch of people. But um, the proportion of people with high quality data increased over time. Yeah. Okay. I think I want to slowly wrap up the COVID stuff, but the actually so so one one of the last questions I had was about the preprint. Just what exactly was the purpose of the preprint? Is it to kind of just like give an overview and say like this is what we're doing, so you don't have to do it in the individual papers or um, because in a way like I you know I presented in the lab and I always at the end I felt like. Okay, like I've presented a study with no data right now. <laughs> it was a bit weird. I mean, there, it, it is it is kind of like a um, a data release paper in a way, right? It is presenting the data and the potential of the data essentially. So there are no results in the paper, um, but I mean, it's a it is a common thing to present data, and we just wanted to make sure um, that the data is really well defined and that we, pro I mean, we provide all these additional measures and um, these quality checks and um, the weights and everything. Um, and it's just to, um, it's more of a methodological paper in the sense saying this data is here and this is how the data was created and this is what the data can do or what you can do with the data. Um, but it's it's not a classic uh, research article in the sense of like we collect the data and then here are the results. There are no results in there essentially besides um, presenting the data in itself and showing that it has um, good quality and that um, there's variance in it um, and that there's difference between individuals and differences within the group. Yeah, we just wanted to make sure um, that that this is good, reasonable data, and um, we just wanted for people to be able to see and um, explore that for themselves essentially. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it is a it is a data release paper, without releasing the data right now. Yeah, well, because um, it's only um, yeah. I mean, it's 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 going to be released uh, once we're finished um, with everything. Um, so yeah, it is a data presentation paper essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I think it also like it does makes makes complete sense to to do that from the perspective of just I think also for the authors just to kind of have like one thing to organize like what the data is and yeah it makes sense i was just yeah curious what exactly the yeah so it's basically presenting the data for when it comes out in in a year yeah and also when it's being used um what is actually the data that you're working with um when when it's being used to um explore specific questions it is just there and it is reported on what we have and how it looks like. Because I think it is important, with, especially with such a big sample, it's important that what kind of sample are you working with and, and how does it compare to the general population? Um, so now moving towards your what we could call your main research, even though it isn't right now. Um, kind of the last question about the COVID thing is then like, so how does that fit in with your postdoc? Like how long do you plan on spending on the COVID research? How long is your postdoc position? <laughs> like how does, like what are the practicalities of that? So uh, I'm, I'm working on um, both my project um, and, the, and the COVID study at the same time. And then there are some other things I have to <laughs> work on. Um, some old projects maybe? Some old projects, yes, <laughs> we all do. Um and no, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of work. But so I'm thinking, 
I mean, funding is always a question, but I'm at least going to stay here another year, maybe two years. We'll see, funding-wise, how things go. Um, and uh, how it does it fit in? I mean, part of, I mean, for example, we have this altruism task, and then we have this public goods game in there. Um, these are things, as I said, I think um, in the beginning, the or just the entire COVID pandemic is a bit of a gigantic public goods game. Um, and so it is interesting to to model essentially um, anonymous, um, large-scale um, group interactions. Um, it's also, for example, yeah, this, um, this altruism task is more, I mean, it's kind of like a um, dictator game, um, but... Um, Classic altruism. The dictators uh, of the world. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the question, well, what is altruism altogether, right? Um, but, um, uh, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's uh, just for, I mean, my, my general research interest is social behavior, right? How do we as humans interact with other humans? Um, and how do, does the behavior and, and, and the thought processes of other people influence our own behavior? And this is, this is a huge part of it. It's, for example, who has the, the option for altruism, essentially. I mean, you can look at altruism, but then um, if you're really, if you're on your last dime and you, you can't pay your rent and you can't pay for your food, and then it's a very different question. It's like, am I willing to give 50 cents to another participant as when you're, I don't know, yeah, you're living in a huge mansion and you really don't care about the money and you just do it for fun. And then and you have a lot more opportunity, for example, for altruism. And, and, and so um, it is, have you heard of Christoph Korn? I think he has a similar uh, study. Yeah, that's, on a, that's the... <laughs> an interesting person. Who, who's that? <laughs> I don't know. But uh, some person who seems to have some sort of research project going on for the last few years on whether you can or cannot cooperate in a social dilemma. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, and it is very much dependent on the situation you're in and and the opportunities you have. So that's how that fits with my my research and also like um for example biases um they do influence our behavior towards people um and i haven't really worked on that a lot but it's um it's not that it isn't part of social cognition right it is a huge part of social cognition how we perceive people in the first moment how we see them um these intrinsic biases that we have that we have learned that we um were taught how do they influence our behavior and it's just um expanding essentially this um this question of social cognition to a more realistic environment a more real life environment that is not just so focused on what's going on in the lab and i think it's yeah it's been a great experience and i think it will help to get new ideas and and, and continue this kind of research but is the the public goods games that you're the data that you collected as part of the COVID study, is that a, like standard public good game, or is it like did you change something about it to make it more applicable? Or no, it is um, pretty standard public goods game. It's just that it's essentially anonymous because the groups are randomly selected on each wave, so they can't really learn anything about their partners because it's you kind of learn more about the entire group essentially the group behavior, but it is classic standard public goods game and they know the other players are the other participants yeah and we actually there's i got an email once from a participant saying why are people not investing this is so stupid and then calculating like giving me all the the calculations about it <laughs> and it's like why are is are these actually real people because this is very irrational behavior and that was i mean that was a great message <laughs> i mean that's in the in the very first prisoner's dilemma right 
There's yeah. this by Flood where he has at the end the comments and the second person keeps saying like, come on. I'm like, doesn't he realize that this is the, the more rational thing to do? I'll cough it a few times so he'll get it. And they're like, yeah. oh, he really doesn't get it. Like, <laughs> what's wrong with him? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I guess it also makes it easier if you then like didn't have a predefined project per se that you like definitely wanted to work through at Caltech or something, right? Like if you it's if you're interested in like social interactions and dynamics, then you are in a sense doing that. Um it's just somehow for me it seemed like you maybe just because of what you did in Hamburg, that's just not the direction you plan to go when you arrive. No, at but I mean I'm I mean I'm kind of expanding the direction a little bit and also what's a project that I'm working on now is um I mean, what I did during my PhD was a very specific work, right? It was very specific on how do we, how can we model very rational theory of mind processes or what's rational is, is, is a bad word. I think it's a, a very structured and strategic theory of mind processes, essentially. So it's a very specific part of theory of mind and social interaction that we're looking at in these economic games or in these, in these very structured interactions when we when we explore that. And so um, it's, I think it's actually, it follows from that to expand it a little more into what, what, what are the alternatives that, I mean, it is, it is modeling and it is capturing a part of social behavior, a very specific part, but it's um, social interaction, social behavior is very broad and very big and there are very different options to do it and engage in it. And um, if we want to predict and explain human behavior, we have to to look at more aspects. Okay, shall we shall we look at the old aspects though? Let's look at the old aspects. Yeah. <laughs> that was a no, good I mean, I'm not saying that it's less right? <laughs> important. It's not. I'm not saying that it's not important and that I don't enjoy this work. Um, I'm just saying that it's part of a of a broader approach. Yeah, of course. It's, I mean, it's one approach to studying a type of behavior or phenomenon or whatever. Uh, it's not the only approach. Although it's a pretty good approach. Um, <laughs> yeah. Maybe if you if you remember, can you give a like one to two minute summary of the paper? Of the review paper? Of the of your neuropsychology paper, Theory of Mind and Decision Science towards the Topology of Tasks and Computational Models by Rochetau. <laughs> it is um it is a paper reviewing different kinds of computational cognitive models for social decision making and as i said before it's i'm looking at very structured social interactions that are often studied in at the like interaction between economics and cognitive neuroscience that are um inspired a lot by economic research um some are more from psychology some are from from more from economics and we're looking at this inter intersection essentially where these two things come together which study similar questions with very very different approaches um and it has grown together more and more over the last years i think um that um methods have been shared and, and approaches have been shared and so um as i said it looks at different computational cognitive models so Formulate, 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 well, formulizations, formalizations, I can't. Formalizations. Formalizations, yeah. thank you. Um, of, um, of these kind of, um, interactions, how can we quantify social interactions or social strategic interactions? And, um, uh, theory of mind generally is referred 
to the process of inferring other people's mental states. Um, although even this term is very differently used by different people in different fields. Um, but it's, it's a, it's, it's a term from social psychology, developmental psychology. The question is how, to what degree can these different computational models capture these theory of mind processes and also in which, um, lab tasks, in which lab environments and settings are such, um, inference processes about other people's mental states actually elicited, which is not a trivial thing, I think. Yeah, that's something I have a few questions about later. Um, and then you also have the, but first, uh, you also have these two dimensions according to which you. Uh, yeah, we're trying to characterize, um, tasks and computational models according to two dimensions, as you said. Um, one is uncertainty and, um, distribution of information among individuals. And the other one is kind of, um, interactivity. Uh, to some degree. So how um, relevant is the behavior of other agents, as it is called in decision neuroscience, um, or in, in decision science, um, affected by your own behavior? How much are you affected by the other person's behavior? So how how interactive is this, essentially? And how, so for the tasks, it's um, like, what is this task? Does it have this component or this characteristic? And for the models, it's more, can it capture um, this component or characteristic what exactly was the motivation behind this sorting it or like having these two dimensions and using that to kind of structure tasks and models that is i mean this is actually from when we developed the task for my um phd and um because we so we were starting out with, okay, we want to look at theory of mind processes in an interactive setting, um, and we want to look at how um, actually the neural signal between two interacting partners interaction influences, is influenced, and um, so really look at interactive theory of mind processes. And then we sat there and we looked at different tasks, these classic economic games um, and, and other tasks, and we realized um, that we weren't quite happy with it because we thought um, it doesn't really... I mean, there's a huge possibility that it doesn't really elicit these kind of mental processes because there are other far easier options to solve these tasks. And so um, actually that was um, an email that I still have saved on my desktop as a note um, from Martin Hebert, who at the time was a postdoc with Jan. And he, he, he wrote me this email and was like, okay, here are these um, criteria for which I think what elicits theory of mind doesn't, I think you have to have, uh, it has to be, I mean, it obviously has to be interactive. Otherwise, and um, this is something that we realized very on. It's like, if there's no um, behavioral relevance, then yeah, what the other person does is irrelevant to you. Um, and so um, it has to be interactive. And then the second part was, your belief or your state of representation of the world has to be different from the other person's representation um, or of the state of the environment because otherwise you can't discriminate them experimentally. So um, if they are identical, you might as well think about what the other person's mental state is, but if it is identical to your own mental state, then you as an experimenter can't discriminate between these two things because they're identical. So how would you discriminate between the two? Um, and that is kind of how it started out. Um, and, um, and then we started thinking about which environment and which situation would actually create such a scenario or in the real world, where is this the case? Where do you have, um, for example, asymmetric information or you have uncertainty? Um, there's 
there's um, there are multiple possibilities for what you're currently thinking about the environment or what kind of information you have about the environment, how you what it is that is driving your behavior um, and um, where you're interacting with another person. And that's how these two dimensions essentially came along because we think um, uh, the more interactive, the more behavioral relevance there is, the stronger you start engaging in these thinking about what does the other person think and potentially how am I being perceived by the other person? How does my behavior influence the other person? And then if you're um, very good at this kind of recursive reasoning and could go even further in the sense of I think that you think that I think, there's actually a very funny uh, friends scene <laughs> where um, it's about two of them having an affair and the others don't know. And there's this scene was like, they know that we know and it's like but they don't know that we know that they know and then it goes on and on and on like this <laughs> so um yeah um and so that's where uh, you got your inspiration for from friends <laughs> um okay. yeah. solve that problem with that question <laughs> yeah it's a very intellectual journey um <laughs> um yeah, so that was the motivation for that. And so that's how we developed this and how we looked at these different computational models to think about how we can capture that and quantify that. And um, we came to this conclusion that you have to have these um, certain criteria to make sure. It's not that there's no theory of mind elicited in these other situations. I have no idea whether it is. It could be. And it could be different for different people. But just the the likelihood or the probability that it happens is larger in such an environment because there is relevance of it. The other person's mental state has relevance for you and the other person's behavior has relevance for you. Okay, that's slightly changed. It changes a little bit how I understood it then. Okay, so it is also a part like as an experiment and what can you actually get out of this task in that sense, not just from a what does a person do, but like what can I infer from what they do? It is, um, it is an assumption of ours that this is stronger in these situations. I mean, for us, it makes more sense that people would engage in this kind of thinking in certain situations. But in the end, this is an empirical question, right? I mean, we can make all kinds of assumptions about how humans reason about things. Um, and we can, from introspection, we get certain informations, but this is just ourselves, right? So we're, assuming that certain scenarios are more likely to elicit these kind of reasoning processes. Um, but as I said, in the end, it is an empirical question. Yeah. So if you don't mind, can I be slightly critical of some things in the paper? Sure, go ahead. So one thing is you said earlier that you need interactivity for to have three of mind in these tasks. And you talked about behavioral relevant, like because of behavioral relevance, basically. If it doesn't matter to me, then what? But to me, those are just not the same thing, right? Like in... So, for example, you have the the two like two of the examples you give. Are one is the false belief task, and the other are uh, dyadic games like the prisoner's dilemma or stack hunt or whatever. And it seems to me that, according to Figure Four, <laughs> uh, where you basically you list them right, and I think the idea is that kind of the more towards the right and up they are, the more likely the tasks. Sorry, the more they are, are the more uncertain they are, and the more interactive they are, the more likely they are to elicit theory of mind. In the participants. But it seems to me that, for example, a prisoner's dilemma can very easily lead to a lot less theory of mind than a false belief task, even though it's more interactive. Because, so in the false belief task, it seems to me that, or rather, it seems to me a lot about the number of options, like to the almost action space or belief space of someone. So, like, if you have a false belief task and the other person can have, like, 
there's like six different things they could believe, right? Then I have to figure out, okay, is it that option or not? Why would it be this option or not? And all this kind of stuff. Whereas in a prison dilemma, it's a binary decision. It's much, much simpler in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, the complexity of the situation is much reduced. So it, it seems to me that those examples, even the examples you give to me, almost point towards the opposite of what you're trying to do um, in terms of rather that I would almost think that they are reversed in terms of how much theory of mind they elicit, if that makes sense. So um, first, it, it's um, not necessarily that it elicits more theory of mind. So this, um, I think it's the y-axis is more about interactivity. So about this um, recursive reasoning, essentially. Um, and so I, I, I would agree that I mean, what you're actually saying is action uncertainty. You don't know what the other person's going to do. And there is a, yeah. a lot of uncertainty about what the other person's going to do. So there's not much state uncertainty, but there's a lot of action uncertainty potentially. Or maybe there's even more um, state uncertainty. And I would agree that if there is more uncertainty, um, it would elicit, um, it, it has the potential to elicit more reasoning about the other person. But on the other hand, if it's completely irrelevant to you, then why would you think about it? But you could make a false belief task relevant, right? By saying you get a euro every time you get it correct or whatever, right? And then, for example, yeah, that's that's true. But then you would still, um, your prediction of the other person would be completely inconsequential of the person uh, to the person that you're predicting. So um, this is kind of what um, we thought with this recursive process is if my behavior, if my prediction of the person that has the false belief, for example, is correct or incorrect, that is completely irrelevant to the person engaging in in this task, making the decision essentially, because they don't know what kind of prediction we're making. On the other hand, if you would say that this is your opponent or this is your partner or something, and if he or she predicts correctly or incorrectly what you're doing, um, then you get you get a prize or or something like that, or you will find each other in um, in the museum where you're looking for each other and you know where the other person's going or something like that. Um, or only if you if you reach the goal together, you can open the gigantic chess box and get the prize and the pot of gold or something. Then there's this interactive behavioral relevance, essentially. On the other hand, if you have a lot of uncertainty and the other person's behavior is completely irrelevant to you, let's say you're in a supermarket and there's another person going shopping, there are thousands of choices, but you usually don't walk, or at least, I don't know, maybe you do. I usually don't walk behind people and be like, I think that person's going to grab that apple and that. You should do it, Tess. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's Especially just, during um, COVID, walking closely behind people. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's not creepy at all. Um, nope, nope. Uh, yeah. So, um, it's, I mean, there are a lot of uh, options for social interaction and a lot of options for social inference, but I think... Yeah, if, if the other person's behavior is not relevant to you, then it's just an energetic question, essentially. Why should you think about it? Yeah, I mean, maybe I agree then with the with what you just said and the overall framing, but maybe not precisely the examples given, or I don't know the false belief task enough, I don't know. I mean, the false belief task, essentially, as it is classically, is you, you see a story, you read a story about someone doing something, and then you have to predict um, what that person's going to do. And it's essentially the person left the room and something changed. And so the person has a false belief. And now you have to predict that person's behavior based on that other person's belief, essentially. Um, but it's a, it's a completely passive task. Maybe it's to me that it just seems more open-ended in terms of like, where are they looking? And okay, if you if it's like very, very minimalistic, you only have two options, then it's binary also. But it just seems to me like the where they're looking it, Again, that just elicits way more than if I'm doing a prison dilemma and the other person defected for the fifth time in a row. Yeah. 
No, um, I, I totally agree. And, and that's why I think, for example, the prisoner's dilemma doesn't have a lot of uncertainty. Um, it's pretty clear, depending on how you frame it or like who you interact with. Let's say you interact with very different people. Um, then you again have uncertainty about the motivation of the other person. Uh, but if you, if you interact, if you play a prisoner's dilemma a thousand times with the same person, I'm pretty sure that you're gonna develop some sort of heuristic. It's just gonna, we're gonna press the same button over and over again. And there's learn, a strong learning effect, yeah. Maybe, um, maybe the figure isn't very good at making that clear. It's, it was a bit of a difficult, um, characterization of putting it in this two-dimensional space, essentially. But, um, no, I agree. We should have probably made that clearer. Yeah. I mean, like about, so especially because, you know, I've been doing basically for the first year of my PhD, I thought a lot about the prisoner's dilemma and used it. So maybe I'm focusing a bit too much on that, but the, but I, but I will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but for there, especially, it seemed to me that, so there were like a few things. I mean, like you said, like when you have lots of iterations with one person, it tends to become fairly obvious what the next person is going to do. And in some of the iterative or iterated prison dilemmas we had, I mean, the first thing is reciprocity is just super high. It's a very strong correlation. People pretty much will cooperate as much as the other person will. Um, and you often have people who, you know, basically reach a stable state of mutual cooperation, mutual affection. It's pretty, I mean, there's some variance, but it's it's pretty common. But the other thing I was really thinking about here with theory of mind and the prison dilemma is that, and this is something I feel like maybe I missed it, but it seems to me that it's missing from the discussion in the paper is just in general the idea of heuristics. Because it seems to me, I mean, this is also a general thing for life. Uh, one can completely agonize over what someone might be thinking all the time or you go well let's do that thing and see what happens and it's in the prison cinema it's much stronger that right like rest like tit for tat basically you just do whatever the other person did in the long run no one's going to really do better than you and you don't have to think at all about what the other person's thinking right it's just it's almost like a non-theory of mind task to me um yeah, I don't know whether I have a specific question here, other than wanting to. Have, I, I felt the need to say that. <laughs> no, I'm, 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 I agree. Um, and there is a huge amount of research on that, right? Um, as you were saying, and a lot of that research includes your own work. Uh, not that and... big a proportion. <laughs> <laughs> you made it sound um, like I've been doing a lot of research here relative to the rest of humanity. Um, great Benjamin Cooper Smith and the Prisoner's Dilemma. Um, yeah. it's pretty much Not the yet. Cooper Smith dilemma. Um, no, so, um, yeah, I agree. And so, for example, some of these computational models include that to some degree. For example, a fictitious play model essentially counts the choices the other person made previously. So it's just, it's just taking the, the frequency of the, of the other person's action and predicts the, the, the next action based on the frequency of previous actions. And there's absolutely no inference process there. Um, the only thing is like, what are you going to do if the other person's going to do this? And the, but for the prediction part, you make no inference about the other person. And yeah, tit for that definitely should have been in there. Um, Wednesday lose shift, for example, all these things. But we, um, we didn't focus on these models there because I mean, they, they never claim to involve any kind of theory of mind process, right? They're not claiming to, to capture. I mean, they're a cognitive theories, right? There are cognitive theories, but they're not, they're not focused no, no, on No, I mean, they are acognitive. Like oh, yeah. If you have evolutionary simulations, it's about something that doesn't even think, right? They just have a certain reflex, you could almost say, yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
yeah, so this is why we, um, the, the, for example, that's why we included um, the um, the fictitious play model, for example, because it has been used a lot, but it doesn't make any assumption about what drives the other person's decision-making process. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's one reason that I'm, like in my own stuff, I'm, I'm wondering like whether, how much I'm going to use these two-by-two two games um, because in a way, the information you get out of it is very very limited sparse yeah i mean i still find it interesting as it because it's binary um that has a certain uh neatness to it rather than if you have like complex data (laughs) but yeah it is kind of limiting in terms of what you can actually really get out of it or well i mean it's it's always a trade-off right if you have more freely interacting people you probably get richer social interactions and the, the the inference processes are much richer but then on the other hand is how do you quantify that it's after all it's this yeah. private cognitive process that you have no way of accessing unless the person tells you what they were thinking and then you're making the assumption that the person themselves um, themselves has um, this access to their own cognitive process and they are able to vocalize it and which is it captures a part of this cognitive process, but it doesn't capture all of it, um, probably. Um, and so, um, I mean, this is the, this is, I guess, where these, um, these decision models are handy is because it gives you some sort of quantification. It makes it, um, it makes it measurable, comparable. But of course, it is very limited. And especially as you get into larger state spaces or larger action spaces, they become very hard to compute and it's becoming very messy. And then the, question again is is that what humans are doing are we following this complex Bayesian um, learning process and updating process or is it something else and is this just approximating it um yeah yeah i mean that's one thing i found kind of curious while reading your paper i can't remember where i wrote it but somewhere i wrote in the margins like this is almost like assuming the homo economicus but from a psychological perspective like all this inferential process is going on rather than someone saying "Ah, whatever i'll just do that yeah (laughs) yeah. (laughs) and i mean even just introspectively like think about it when are you really thinking about another person's mental state not enough (laughs) (laughs) or so i'm told No, but in the mo- like most times you make very heuristic and fixed decisions. Like, um, I mean, I, I find always this example when you're passing someone in the hallway and usually everyone goes to the right, right? And then, but sometimes there's this weird situation where everyone goes back and forth and this is a clear sign of, okay, the, the norm <laughs> somehow didn't work here and we're stuck in this weird situation where you don't think where you go and you don't think about it. Will the other person take the left or the right? You will just do something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel all like also in like, introspective real life like even if you think about someone about what someone's doing you have like three or four factors you consider right like that's the most you go like okay were they like in a general good mood or whatever how do they usually you know whatever like it's not like this super complex reasoning that really goes on i mean i guess maybe some people say that that's kind of what emotions are this kind of integration of lots and lots of different influences but at least on the cognitive level or the conscious level yeah, I think it's heuristic. Heuristics all the way. <laughs> um, yeah, it's emotion and memory. I mean, you have a lot of, for the most people, you have interacted with them a couple of times and you had previous experiences that probably weighted into different degrees. Um, some were very influential of your image of that person. And so you, and you have met a lot of other people and you can probably, you, maybe you can make some kind of comparison between 
people and like likely behavior that these people are going to exhibit. Yeah, but, but as I said, I mean, the social interactions are so diverse and so different. Um, and it's, we're probably not using the same process in every situation. But when you think about some, like really these really economic games, uh, like when you're on the stock market or when you're really trying playing poker with someone and you're thinking about whether they're actually have good cards or not and whether they're just bluffing it's like then you're really trying maybe to think about this but it's probably very specific situations where the stakes are high and and where you have a strong drive to do that yeah that's another thing i wrote down your third dimension could be just stake size yeah because that's really like even in a prisoner's dilemma right like if you're doing lots of tasks and you earn like a euro or 10 or whatever people will probably not think about it as much as if you say like there's this I mean, they're, they're like uh, Richard Thaler has like some of these papers where they look at game shows, right? Like those people are probably thinking about this quite a bit when it's like $300,000 or whatever. Yeah, I mean, we probably would get very different results if you'd be like, okay, now you're playing for $50,000. What is the other person going to do? Well, I mean, cognitively, you'll probably get yeah. different things, but I don't know in terms of behavior. I mean, there are some studies that look at stake size and it seems to be, I think people are a bit more idealistic Mm-hmm. Uh, unless I that's wrong, that was hypothetical stuff. Um, I think people behave a little more traditionally economically rational. The 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 more money is at stake, but not that much, I think. Well, but um, I mean, but the thought process going into it might be quite different. Yeah, and it could be again. Um, where are you? What's your action space in the sense of? What are you, how much money do you have? What's your life situation in a way? Can you afford to be, to be, to share or can you not? Or, um, are you used to not sharing and all these kind of things? Um, I mean, people are, make decisions in very different situations. Um, and I think the context in which a decision is made is not, um, irrelevant. I mean, it's basically everything there is, right? Even if you have personality stuff. It, yeah, I think like when you look, when like the, I've been thinking about that a bit, like when you look about like what influences how someone makes a decision, you have the environmental factors and the kind of more personal factors. But it seems to me in many cases, the environmental factors are just, just outnumber the personal quite a bit. And maybe the, the personal ones are, it's, unless like anything's too extreme like unless like it's about huge amounts of money or the differences are huge between options or whatever i think like if if everything's kind of similar then the personal stuff is probably more important like piece by piece compared to environmental stuff maybe but i think there's just so many environmental factors that like accumulation of it just yeah yeah i think there's this one paper and um, that looks for example at um an equity aversion and guilt aversion or something. So where you have the option to the other person knowing that you didn't share or the other person doesn't know. And then, I mean, it's a very different incentive in a way. The other person thinks you're fair, but you're actually keeping quite a lot of the money. Or, um, Do you remember what that paper is? Um, I think it's um, Nature Communications, um, Van Barr et al., I think. Okay. I'll have a look. Yeah, I might actually talk to someone soon who does inequality aversion in animals. Uh, I don't want to name the name because we haven't scheduled anything yet, but the person said yes, but that would be, that would be fun. <laughs> oh yeah, that would be cool. Sounds yeah, interesting. I don't know whether animals have guilt aversion. I don't know. 
it's a good question. Yeah, it's just weird. Like in general, like when I think about, I think I wrote this to you in my email when I asked you whether you want to do this. Like I've basically not been thinking about theory of mind at all. And I've been working on, you know, prison dilemma, that kind of stuff for a year now. And somehow it's this weird thing that in some sense seems super important. And, you know, as, as you said, like one of the, how we spend a large part of our lives, right? Thinking about what other people are thinking, but in a way also, you can also manage without it pretty, pretty well in many situations. Yeah. I think I've, I've run through my points. Okay. And I think you also might want a slight break before your next meeting. <laughs> it's okay. That's what we do nowadays. Sit in front of our screen. <laughs> Talk to people. Okay. I'll just stop recording you. Or do you have anything you want to say? Any declarations to make? Any, I don't know. <laughs> uh, Final words of wisdom. No. Yeah, exactly. Something you what you've <laughs> learned and that you think people should know. Oh, no, uh, no, I'm not going to claim to have any kind of knowledge that everyone should know. Okay, is that your knowledge then? Everyone has their <laughs> own piece of important knowledge. Or... Um, yeah, no. Sorry, there's no... No wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> no wisdom from Tesla. Okay, then I'll stop recording. <laughs>